0: If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Luke. Luke. When we get together here, we, we like to worship the Lord passionately, and then we like to study the, the, the word passionately. And we just go verse by verse and hover on some themes here and there. So we're studying the book of Luke, and right now we're up to Luke chapter 3. I, And within this study of Luke chapter 3, we're focusing especially on baptism, using this as a uh kind of a springboard to talk about baptism because next week after this service at Lake Phelan, we're gonna have this baptismal service. We're also gonna have it again in uh, uh August for those who uh couldn't make it in uh th- th- this time. So we're kind of preparing for that. Um, and I want to entitle this message, Renouncing Satan, his works, and his pomp. <laughs> How many of you have heard that expression before? Maybe a confession. We renounce Satan, his work, and... has anyone here heard that confession before? A few of you have. Uh, Those who come from more liturgical, high church backgrounds, especially in the Anglican tradition, uh, this has been a... a, 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 It was centered on a baptismal confession. In fact, it's the earliest baptismal confession that we have. Where a candidate for baptism would would have... They'd ask, "Well, Do you renounce Satan, his works, and all of his pomp? And the person replied, Yes, and then they could be baptized. Um, The word pomp here is we don't use it very much. Uh, at graduations, we, we, they play this song, Pomp and Circumstance, but most people don't know what pomp is. Pomp is, it has to do with something ornate, something very extravagant. And so to renounce Satan's pomp is to renounce sort of the glitter and gold of the world that lures us. And I want us to focus on this, and you'll see how it loops into baptism. Let's read Luke chapter 3, verse 3. I'm reading from the TNIV version. Uh, The last time we spoke, we went up to verse 14. Uh, I'm just going to read one verse uh, this morning and then move on to kind of how it applies to some other verses. John went into all the country around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, the background here, as we said several weeks ago, is this. Starting around 200 B.C., there, there was a move uh, among Jews. They, some began to sense that the Lord is coming. And some noticed this prophecy in Isaiah 40 that seems to suggest that the Lord's going to come in the wilderness. So we find communities of people uh, in the several centuries before the time of Christ moving out to the desert. And uh, uh, in the wilderness, the most famous of these groups was the Essenes that we get the Dead Sea Scrolls from. But there was other groups as well. And the one thing they had in common... So far as we can discern archaeologically and from the testimony of some writings, is that they would baptize people as the initiation rite into this community. They were out there waiting for the Lord to come. They were preparing the way for the Lord. And John is very much a uh, prototype of these groups. Whether he actually came from one or not, we can't prove. But he's preaching the message that these groups preach. As we saw several weeks ago, he's preaching a baptism of repentance, which really means a dipping for a turnaround. The word repentance means just to turn around. The word baptism is the Greek word baptizo, which means to dip. So he's dipping for a turnaround. And what that was showing was that when a person was baptized, it meant that they're committing their life to to God insofar as they understand God. They're turning from the ways of the world. They're joining the, the kingdom community that's out there in the wilderness. And now their life will be dedicated to preparing the way for the Lord. And that's still really what we're doing here today. Now, After Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, the early church carries on this practice of baptism. And it retains all of that meaning. But it also deepens it in some significant ways. And so uh, this morning and then next week I'm going to talk about the distinctly Christian aspect of baptism. The first sermon preached, uh, the first Christian sermon after the Lord had ascended, came on the day of Pentecost. Jesus had told the disciples to wait in Jerusalem until they received the power from on high. And they did that, and when the Holy Spirit fell on them, that was the power Jesus was talking about, uh, they all began to speak in different languages. And the people who were gathered for the day of Pentecost, who came from all over the Roman Empire, they heard the disciples preaching or, or, or praising God in their own language. And so there was quite a crowd that, 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 that developed. Peter stands up and uses this as an occasion to preach what is the first recorded Christian sermon. And he tells the people that Jesus was the Messiah, but he also tells the people that we have crucified the Messiah. And then that brings us to verse 37 of Acts chapter 2. Now listen to this. This is the first mention of baptism after the resurrection of Jesus. When the people that Peter was preaching to heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers... What shall we do? Peter replied, listen to this, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now we're going to pick this apart word by word. Nothing fancy, just exegesis. Okay? There's five things you find in this passage. Repent, number one. Number two, Be baptized, number three, for the forgiveness of your sins. Or number three, in Jesus' name. Number four, for the forgiveness of your sins. Number five, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that's really the basic gospel right there. Now I'm going to be talking about the gift of the Holy Spirit in a couple of weeks as soon as we finish up all the baptism stuff because it comes up again uh, later on in Luke chapter 3. So we're going to leave off that part. I want to speak about the first four elements. Repent, be baptized in Jesus' name for the forgiveness of your sins. And just to make it interesting, I'm going to go in reverse. All right, good. So let's start with this phrase, for the forgiveness of sins. What what, What is meant here? Be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. As I mentioned two weeks ago, There are some who believe that baptism in and of itself brings about the forgiveness of sins. So if you're baptized, your sins are forgiven. But if you're not baptized, your sins aren't forgiven. But as I mentioned two weeks ago, no Jew in the first century would have ever held that view. There were pagans who held sort of a magical view of religious rites that if you just do a religious rite or ritual, then you'll be okay with the gods. But the Jews never thought that way. Uh, What got a person right with God was their heart. And throughout the New Testament, we find that forgiveness is associated with repentance. But baptism is so closely associated with repentance that they would use the phrase together sometimes, repent and of course be baptized to show that you have repented for the forgiveness of your sins. But the forgiveness attaches first and foremost to the repentance than it does to the baptism. So the basic message you find throughout the New Testament is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved or repent and you shall be saved. In fact, in the very next chapter in the book of Acts, Peter's preaching to another crowd, and he says this in 3.19. Repent, which means turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out. Here he doesn't mention baptism, because it's the turning that wipes away your sin. And so we find is the pattern throughout the New Testament. Uh, uh, God looks at the heart, and the heart disposition is what saves a person. That's why the thief on the cross could be saved, even though he was never baptized. Still, baptism in the New Testament, they assume that if, you're, uh, if you repent, you'll be baptized, so they use the two together. Uh, the second phrase is, in Jesus' name. What does that mean, in Jesus' name? Now, the church that I, was, I initially met Christ in um, was a group, maybe some of you have heard this, uh, they're sometimes called Jesus-only Pentecostals or oneness Pentecostals. Uh, some of us have come from that background. Uh, maybe some of you here listening still are. <laughs> Bless you. Um, I wrote a book about it. Uh, it's out in the gathering area. Uh, when is Pentecostals in the Trinity? But that was my first you know, exposure to, and I really did meet Christ in this group. Now they had some distinctive beliefs. They didn't believe in the Trinity and some other things. They believed that baptism was literally for the washing away of sins. But they also took this phrase, in Jesus' name. And to them it was a formula which either validated or invalidated your baptism. That is, when you were baptized, the person had to say, in Jesus' name, otherwise your baptism wasn't valid. And in their theology, that meant your sins weren't forgiven. If you had any other phrase said over you when you are baptized, all bets were off, and your, uh, your sins aren't forgiven, and you're going to go to an eternal hell. Now, it got interesting because you find in the Bible that there's no uniformity about this expression. Sometimes it says, in Jesus' name. Sometimes it says, in the name of the Lord. Sometimes it says, in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then you've got Jesus in Matthew 28 and 19. He says, be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So if you're thinking about a formula, you've got to ask, okay, which formula are we going to go with? Which caused a whole lot of debates because some people said, well, if you say, in Jesus' name, that's good enough. But other people said, no, if it's going to be valid, you have to say, in, in, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, other people said, no, you've got to say in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so they're debating about who's going to go to hell because if you didn't say the right words, you know, it's all bets are off. Now, in any debate, you've got to, first and foremost, ask the question. This is the most important question. What view of God is being presupposed by this debate? What is the picture of God that's being premised in this discussion? And the picture of God that's being presupposed in this discussion is this. It's a God who will, on the basis of a minute technicality, send you to hell, even though your heart may love him, your life may be in congruity with his. Uh, you know, he, he loves you, you love him. But because the right word wasn't said, you're going to go to hell. You know, did they include the word Lord when you were baptized? Oh, they didn't? Sorry. Bye-bye. Uh, or, or what have you. But see, our picture of God has got to be centered on Jesus Christ, Amen. And if your picture of God is centered on Jesus Christ, because he says, if you see me, you see the Father. Okay? The last thing you get out of Jesus is is, is a picture of God where he's some kind of, excuse me, but sort of anal anal, uh, accountant who's drinking too much monster energy drink, and he's just, you know, damning people to hell on the basis of a technicality. Jesus goes in the opposite direction. He blows apart the technicality of religious thinking. He embraces the prostitutes and the tax collector and the thief on the cross for crying out loud. He's got a bear hug around everybody. You know, you don't see him when the thief on the cross is the Lord. You know, he's, he's lived a whole life of sin, and now with his last breaths, he's saying, can I make it into heaven? And you don't find Jesus saying, well, what words were pronounced over you when you went in the water? You see? All right, so, so whenever you have in a discussion a presupposed view of God that is not consistent with the basic picture of God you get in the ministry of Jesus Christ, you've got to know that something's wrong. Now, what's wrong in this case is this. What really kind of freed me from this way of thinking and really led me out of this, uh, this, this group was uh, uh, as I began to research on my own uh, some stuff about the background of the New Testament, I discovered that Jews of the first century, really the couple centuries leading up to the time of Christ, when they would ceremonially, ceremonially wash themselves or wash someone else or often wash an item, we talked about that several weeks ago, as a precursor to baptism, they would have these ceremonial washings. Washings, They would often, we have writings on this, they would often say, in the name of something. Uh, but no one thought of it as a formula. For example, if they'd use in the name, and it was singular, and then they'd give a whole list of things. We are dedicating this uh, jar to, uh, in the name of, in the name of uh, uh, you know, Rabbi Sharon, in the name of Mount Sinai, in the name of, of El Shaddai, in the name of Moses. Or they baptize a person in the name of the Ten Commandments and Moses the righteous and, and Yahweh's faithfulness. But no one was thinking of it as, as, a sort of, uh, uh, as a sort of formula. The phrase, in the name of, simply meant in the first century, in the light of, or for the sake of, or with, the, with authority of, with the authority of. It wasn't a magical formula. It just meant we're doing this in the light of Mount Sharon in light of the parting of the Red Sea in the light of, and they'd list all these different things. So when Peter stands up and he says, be baptized now in the name of Jesus. See, John baptized just for repentance, really kind of in the name of repentance. But Peter says, be baptized in the name of Jesus. What he's saying is, you be baptized in the name of, for the sake of, in the light of, and in the authority of Jesus Christ. Be baptized in the light of all that God has done for us in Christ. Be immersed. Turn around and be immersed. In the light of the fact that Jesus died for our sins, turn around and and get yourself dipped. In in the light of the fact that that Jesus has forgiven our sins and set us free from the devil's oppression. In the light of the fact that he started this kingdom revolution where we can begin to experience heaven here on earth. In the light of all of that, repent and turn around and be baptized. That's what the phrase means. It was not a magical formula. Third thing, third phrase we're going to look at as we're working ourselves backwards Peter says, Repent and be baptized in Jesus' name for the forgiveness of your sins. We've talked about forgiveness. We've talked about uh, being uh, about in Jesus' name. Now let's talk about baptism. The word is baptizo, as I've said before, and it literally means to dip or to dunk. The word is used or a form of the word is used in other contexts that have nothing to do with the, the, the sacrament or the, uh, the, the ordinance of baptism. And it means to, to dip or to dunk. But what I want to draw our attention to is something rather unusual. And I need to ask you ahead of time to keep an open mind here. Because some of you, probably many of you, maybe most of you, haven't heard this before. And whenever there's something new, it's appropriate to say, what? And always ask this question. doesn't matter what Greg Boyd's opinion is. It matters, is this the teaching of the word of God? I want us to notice something on that first Christian sermon. Peter's preaching, the people get convicted. The people then say, in verse 37, what shall we do? And Peter says, Repent, and be baptized. This is the first thing out of Peter's mouth when the people say, What are we supposed to do? We now realize that we're sinners. What are we supposed to do? And baptism, though it wasn't regarded as in in and of itself saving, it was the first order of business in preaching. Uh, This is something we find throughout uh, the, the New Testament. Whenever a person comes to faith or repents, they immediately are baptized. Now, Even before we look at the the passages, I need to say this. Part of this is because there was a cultural background there where people basically understood what the meaning of these ceremonial washings were. They they, They knew what baptism was sort of about, so they didn't need a lot of teaching in order to do this. Whereas today, there's a lot of confusion about this, so it makes sense to have classes and to do some teaching before a person's baptized. Still, there is, if we look at this, a sense of urgency... About baptism that seems to be, for the most part, lacking today. Uh, Look at Acts chapter 8. It says that when they believed, the Samaritans here, when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. When they believed it, they were baptized. Now, it's significant that it mentions both men and women because it tells us that the people who were baptized were old enough to be called men and women and it also tells us that they were old enough to believe. But the point I want to drive home right now is that as soon as they believed, they were baptized. There was no delay there. Another passage, another interesting verse comes several verses after this one. The background to this passage that we're going to look at is this. Uh, Philip is out there, you know, uh, preaching to to people. He notices a guy. He's an Ethiopian eunuch, which is just an Ethiopian who's kind of a monk. He's taken a vow of celibacy. And uh, he's sitting in a chariot going for a ride, and he's reading Isaiah 53. Philip sees this, and so he wants to use the opportunity to witness to the guy. So he climbs in the chariot. Then Philip, it says in verse 35, began with that very passage of scripture and told him, the, the, the Ethiopian eunuch, the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, here's water. What can stand in the way of me being baptized? There's several things that are really interesting about this passage. One thing is this. Everybody carried a water flask in those days in, in the ancient Near East, uh, you can't go very far without having water, you know, it's, they all had that. And yet it was when this, uh, the, the, the uh, uh, Ethiopian saw, either it was a pond or a, a river, but there's enough water to be baptized in. And that tells us something about the mode of baptism. And I'll talk a little bit about, more about that uh, next, next, next week. But there had to be enough water to be baptized. But the other thing is this. I don't know how long they were in that chariot together, but it couldn't have been days. <laughs> Uh, and yet the Ethiopian uh, uh, eunuch knew that he needed to be baptized uh, on this first sermon that he's hearing from Philip, which tells us that among the things that Philip first talked about when he was preaching the good news was baptism. And that's why when they, as soon as the eunuch sees water, he goes, oh, then I should get baptized. You find this pattern... Throughout the New Testament. A lot of people don't notice it, but it's there all over the place. Uh, Acts chapter 9 Paul gets knocked off his high horse on the road to Damascus, and then he, the Lord opens his eyes and he believes in Jesus. Ananias gets sent up there, and the first thing that happens is Paul gets baptized. Acts chapter 10, uh, Peter is preaching to the Gentiles, uh, and the Holy Spirit falls on them. They all believe in Jesus Christ, and the first thing Peter does is say, Oh, let's get them baptized. This is the pattern. Let's take a look at Acts 16. This is a really interesting passage. Here Paul and Silas are in prison. God sends an earthquake. They get freed from prison. The guard, the jailer, uh, is going to commit suicide probably because he might have been tortured uh, by his bosses because some prisoners escaped under his watch. We don't know. But he's going to commit suicide. And Paul and Silas intervene on this guy who just got through beating them up. And they preach to him uh, Jesus Christ. And then then we come to this, this passage. The jailer then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, well, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Note there that they don't mention baptism right here because that wasn't the essential thing about salvation. They just mentioned believing, which implies turning around, of course. But baptism is important, as we're going to see here shortly. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in the house, everyone who was old enough to hear, the word of the Lord. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Here's another interesting thing. Apparently, all this time, Paul and Silas had been preaching with dirty wounds. And it just shows you something about the mindset. They, they wanted to make sure this guy heard the word of God even before they, they, they got their wounds dressed up. The wounds that this guy inflicted on them, by the way. That's just beautiful. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them out and washed their wounds and then immediately he and all his household were baptized. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and all his household. Now, it, it, several things are interesting here. First is that clearly by the, the, the word household, he's talking about those who were old enough to hear the word of God and those who were enough to obey the word of God. It, the, the household was, uh, consisted of those who believed, which was the ordinary way of talking about households in the ancient world. But the thing I want us to draw attention to is this. Uh, They didn't even wait till morning. That night, immediately, they went out and got baptized. There was this sense of importance about baptism in the early church that is is, kind of lacking today. Uh, There's sort of a loosey-goosey attitude about baptism in the church today, at least in most, in most circles. I've met people who have been Christians most of their life and have hardly even heard about baptism, don't even know what it's really about. There are some denominations that don't even practice baptism. Uh, we have a very different mindset about baptism than it seems the, the early church had. In fact, I would say that even at Woodland Hills Church here, I don't know if we consistently have a sense of the importance of baptism that the early church had. We encourage people in small groups and stuff, whenever they come to the conclusion that they should be baptized as an adult, to have a small group go out and and baptize them. And that happens throughout the year. But I'm not sure that that we do it consistently. In fact, a couple years ago, uh, maybe seven years ago now, in my small group, uh, Marcia Erickson, one night, uh, we got to talking about the Bible and whatever, and somehow we got on this topic. And all of a sudden, she saw this. She was baptized as, as an infant, but it didn't mean anything to her. And, uh, and all of a sudden, she saw that she was supposed to be baptized. And so it was about 11 o'clock at night. It was a November in Minnesota. And we went out to Snail Lake and got in the water, and, uh, and she got baptized. And I almost died, but uh, that's the way you're supposed to do it. Uh, it was in the name of Jesus. But across the board, I'm not sure we put enough emphasis on this. Now, I want to ask this question. What has changed? Why don't we have the same sense of importance about baptism as the early church had? And there's probably a number of things to say as an explanation for that. But the primary one, I believe, is this. Most Christians today, especially in America, live in a different story than the people in New Testament times. The narrative we live in, the story we tell ourselves is different from the story they told themselves. Most Westerners live, Western Christians live in this story. The story is that the world's basically good. Um, yeah, there's problems, but the world's basically good. And what life is about is, is, is you know, the American dream and living as comfortable as possible and, and avoiding as many inconveniences as possible. And then we also, uh, if you're Christian, you get this part of the story that God is mad at you. And, and in fact, that, that something went wrong, you may not understand why, but he's really ticked off, and so you need to be saved, otherwise you're going to go to hell. And, and so they uh, uh, get saved, they believe in Jesus, but they incorporate that into their otherwise pretty typical American story. And see, what happens when you do that is, in this, in this story, salvation means, in the Western story, for most people in the West, salvation means something like private fire insurance. Have you purchased your personal fire insurance? Have you got God off your back? Have you taken care of this? And in this story, salvation is really a sort of private, very personal legal transaction between you and God. And once you've taken care of the transaction, you can go back to living in your normal uh, American uh, Western story. And see, if salvation is just a private uh, legal transaction, then. Baptism can only mean one of two things. It can mean — and there are a few groups that practice this. My, my first church believe this — it can mean part of your personal, private legal transaction is getting baptized. If you want God to stop being mad at you, you need to be baptized, because that is what magically gets God to not be mad at you. And then baptism becomes very important. But unfortunately, that's not a real biblical view of baptism. The only other option. If you see salvation as personal private fire insurance, is you see baptism as sort of this extra thing. It's an ornament. It's a, a symbol, but symbols don't mean much in our culture anymore, so it's sort of an extraneous thing. It's like you go out to buy a car. The car's the real thing. Now you could get cruise control if you wanted to, but you can still drive the car without cruise control. So it's kind of, if you ever get around to it, if you ever think about it, if you're ever in the mood, go out and get baptized. And, and that's because of the story that we live in. In the New Testament story, it's very different from the modern Western individualistic story. In the New Testament, the story is this, the whole cosmos is screwed up, uh, the whole cosmos is under the, op- the oppression of Satan. Human beings have rebelled against God in our primordial past. We're separated from God, we're separated from one another, and we're separated from one another because we're separated from God. So the whole world is screwed up, and people are, are functionally slaves to, to Satan, and the world is, is part of this kingdom of, 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 of Satan, and it's being destroyed, and all the evil in the world, from, from earthquakes to, to wars, is, is a symptom of the reality that the world is. oppressed by a diabolical power that is hostile to God and hostile to human beings. But in this story, Jesus Christ came into into this world as sort of the proverbial Trojan horse, and through his outrageous love, he broke the back of the devil, and he freed the former slaves, and he planted a new kingdom, a new dome in which God is king. And and now this kingdom is, is moving in this world. And in this story, Salvation is not a private, personal, legal transaction between you and God. In this story, in the New Testament story, salvation is a transference from one dominion, uh, from one kingdom to another. You're you're joining a new community. You're joining a new country. You're, You're you're joining a new revolution. A verse that really captures this radical break mindset that is part of the New Testament story is, is Colossians chapter one, verse thirteen, where where Paul says, He has rescued us from the, the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves. The word brought us there was the word that was used when the Roman government would sometimes take whole people groups and transport them or deport them to another area. If they're causing too much trouble, they just shift them all to a different area where they could have more control over them. And so you could translate this passage, we have been deported. We once were in the kingdom of darkness, but we've been deported. We've been brought into the kingdom of the son that he loves. And that's salvation, soteria. We were under the old kingdom, but now we're under a new kingdom. We were living under an old, evil, oppressive lord, but now we're living under a a wonderful creator uh, uh, lord. Uh, we, we change citizenship, we've made a radical break. And in that story, baptism is the pledge that you've been transferred. It means you've accepted your transference. It's a declaration that you've joined the other side. It's a declaration that you've stopped being a citizen of one domain and now you're a citizen of a new domain. It's a public declaration to God and the angels and the principalities and powers in the com- old community and the new community. It's a declaration that now you're a new citizen. You're joining the counter-revolution. Wayne Meeks uh, talks about this, this, this social, uh, how, how the whole society was involved in this conversion experience. It would have been, uh, and, and, and Scott Bourne uh, used this analogy uh, uh, this week with me, he says it was like, in the, it, it'd be as though, to, to confess Jesus Christ as Lord in the first century, would have been like a person in 1960 publicly declaring that they're joining the Communist Party, a person in America, And that was all during the Cold War thing. It would be scandalous. It was a radical, radical break. You're moving from one domain to the other. You're joining the opposition party. And baptism is your public declaration that you're doing that. That's why the earliest confession we have says, it's called the triple renunciation. I renounce Satan. I renounce all of his works. And I renounce all of his pomps. You are publicly saying, I renounce my citizenship to the old world, and I'm announcing and pledging my citizenship to the new world. In the New Testament story, baptism wasn't magic. Because it doesn't magically make you a citizen of the kingdom of God. Your heart does that. But neither is it simply a a, 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 a kind of extraneous symbol. It is a public declaration that you've joined the opposition party. You're no longer American, you're a communist. Or if that analogy bothers you, how's this? You're no longer Al-Qaeda. You're an American. (laughs) That'll sit a little better. Uh, You're joining a radically different side. It was sort of like what happens today when when, when, when immigrants are made citizens. There's a ceremony, and there's other things. The ceremony itself doesn't make you a citizen. There's other things that have to happen. But the ceremony is where you make it official. You declare it. You pledge it. And uh, and, and you, you go from one country to another. That's the meaning of baptism in the New Testament. And so now let's look at the fourth phrase. Repent. Repent and be baptized in Jesus' name for the forgiveness of sins. Let's talk about the word repent. Repentance is the Greek word metanoia. It means to turn around, to do an about-face. It is the one precondition for baptism found throughout the New Testament. You don't find them asking a lot of theological questions, a lot of doctrinal stuff, whatever, but you do have to have a heart that is turned around. And so in the New Testament, the only baptisms that are recorded are ones that are done to people who have turned around, people who have repented, or, to say the same thing, people who have professed faith in Jesus Christ. That's why baptism was always done on people old enough to be disciples. Jesus said this in Matthew 28, 19. He says, therefore go and, look at this, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, and the, the pronoun refers back to disciples, baptizing those that are being made disciples in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, which is, as I said before, just with a view towards the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Notice here that baptism is meant to be the first act of discipleship. It's the first act of obedience on a heart that has turned around. At least that's the normative pattern of the New Testament. And that is why at Wooden Hills, the only form of baptism that we practice is baptism for people who are old enough to make a responsible decision to turn from the ordinary, quote-unquote, way of doing life in the world and turning to Jesus Christ, a person who's old enough to understand what they're doing. And roughly, we say it's probably around the age of 12 or so. And so that, that becomes uh, sort of uh, our, our, our benchmark. Now, what do you do about infant baptisms? And here, I just want to share our stance about infant baptisms. Uh, several people have asked me this question in the last couple weeks. Uh, as I said, the, the only form of baptism that we practice, because we have to have integrity with how we understand the word, and this has been our understanding, the only form of baptism we practice is that of, of people who are old enough to make a responsible decision. At the same time, in fact, and we encourage everyone to be open to that. We encourage everyone to consider being baptized as an adult. At the same time, we recognize that there's been a long church tradition of baptizing infants. And in that tradition, baptism of infants is kind of a way where the parents, on behalf of the child, make a pledge in the community uh, before God takes a pledge to to come around this child. And you are, by faith, embracing this child as part of the covenant community. And it's very meaningful meaningful to, to, to a lot of people. And while we only practice adult baptism, we really also, as you know, strongly emphasize the unity of the body of Christ. And we don't think, since this isn't a matter of salvation, that this is something that should divide the body of Christ. The reason we come together is to work together to further the kingdom of God. And in terms of furthering the kingdom of God, uh, what you think about baptism, doesn't really affect that. So at Woodland Hills Church, though we, we encourage everyone to consider being baptized as an adult, we accept as covenant partners, in fact, this is what gets us in trouble with a lot of other Baptists. <laughs> They're always mad at us for something. But uh, we embrace as covenant partners without any kind of judgment or second-guessing people who have been baptized as infants, so long as they understand that baptism as, as their sign of the covenant. Now, we always will teach adult baptism, and we encourage people to be open to that, uh, but, but we respect the conscience of people who don't see things that way. I encourage people to think in, in these terms. In some ways, you see... In a lot of cultures, uh, in fact, most cultures until recently, uh, marriages were arranged. This little baby was pledged to that family, and this little boy was pledged to that family. And they were, in a real sense, kind of married before they were old enough to even think about such things. But in those cultures, there came a time later on where the boy and the girl owned it for themselves. There was a ceremony Well, now they made it their own, and that's when they were officially married. And uh, I encourage people to think about maybe baptism that way. Uh, there really is a, a, a value to uh, the community coming around a child and the parents pledging this child to the Lord. That's why we practice baby dedication. But later on in life, it's, it's, it's valuable for you, you in your heart, to say to God and the principalities and powers and the world, I have turned. And, I, and, as, and what was said about me as a baby, I'm owning that for myself. So we encourage all to be baptized as an adult. So I end with two questions. Number one, is God speaking to you about baptism? And just be open to that. Pray about that. Study that. Is God saying to you? Maybe you need to be baptized. And if, if you feel like God's saying that to you, I encourage you to stop by at the table uh, and, uh, and sign up to, uh, to take a class uh, that will uh, lead to you being baptized uh, next week. Or if you can't make that, that uh, the class, we're, we're going to put together a quick class this week because so many people signed up. That, that's, no, that's too complicated but, um, the, uh, but, but then in August we're going to have a, uh, a, a, another baptism so consider that my second question is in, in some ways more fundamental are you turned which is different than saying do you believe Jesus is Lord are you turned do you, do you understand your conversion to be this sort of radical turning that I've talked about as radical as saying I'm a communist in America in 1960? Do you understand that you have joined a countercultural revolution? Have you turned? And are you turning? Because the reality is none of us are totally turned yet. Do you understand your being a disciple as a radical turning from one domain to another? As I was studying this stuff for the sermon this week, looking at this ancient liturgy, a light bulb went on. In the early church, when people were going to join the revolution, they turned towards God, but they explicitly renounced Satan and the world and the pomp and the works. We don't renounce anymore. I I never noticed this, but we don't explicitly renounce anything. And why that might be of some concern is this. What we Americans are known for is that we want it all. That's what we're known for. Uh, And we do. It's part of our... We're indoctrinated as a culture this way. We want to say yes to this and yes to that. We don't want to lose anything. And so when that kind of cultural presupposition gets brought in the gospel, we have people who say yes to Jesus, but they want to hang on to every other area of their life being just the way it was. So they just sort of insert Jesus into this unchanged framework, and now Jesus becomes sort of a trivial, private fire insurance policy. But really, if you turn... You can't turn towards one thing without turning your back on a different thing. There's a renouncing that is built into every genuine repentance. You following me here? I got to thinking maybe we need to start doing some renouncing. <laughs> yeah, maybe some declaring, you know, taking a stand. All right, you're with me. Okay. So, and I'm going to do something we've never done here at Willow Hills Church that I can remember. Uh, reading this, these ancient liturgies, I started to like the liturgies. Uh, I, I, we've never done liturgies here. But I want to do a liturgy, and I want to do a liturgy of renouncing. And so I wrote up a renouncing liturgy. And so I'd like us all to stand. And what we're going to do is, this is called uh, Renouncing Satan, All of His Works, and All of His Pops. And we're doing something that's been done throughout church history. With a liturgy, it's not a declaration of where you, in fact, are. This isn't a descriptive thing. It's a prescriptive thing. It, this is a declaration of where we want to be. It's a community thing. So we say it as a we, but you've got to own it as an I. And, and make it your prayer. And, and we're going to pray the Holy Spirit uses this liturgical prayer to actually further us in this direction. I'll read the first line, and then you'll read the second line. And Dave here will, will lead you in the area that you're supposed to uh, read. It's the area that's in, in white. And the Holy Spirit, we just ask that you make this meaningful to us. Make it a prayer that becomes real in our heart, even as we say it. Renouncing Satan, his works, and his pomp. By the grace of God. And the empowering of the Holy Spirit, we who are called to be part of the kingdom revolution, pledge our lives wholly to our Lord Jesus Christ. Now you say, we renounce Satan, all his works, and all his pop. We pledge to acquire all of our life, and all of our worth, and all of our security from Jesus Christ alone. We renounce all idolatrous ways of getting life, worth, and security. We, who are called to be part of the Kingdom of God, pledge to living in Christ-like love for all people at all times in all circumstances, including those who might regard themselves as our enemy. We renounce all tribalism, all racism, all sectarianism, all hatred, and all violence. We pledge to living as a bridge between people and God, and between people with one another. We renounce the sinful walls that separate people from God and divide people along ethnic, national, political, generational, and economic lines. By the grace of God and the empowering of the Holy Spirit, we pledge our lives wholly to Jesus Christ. We, we renounce Satan, all his works, and all his pomp. Let's say it again. We, we renounce Satan, all his works, and all his pomp. Say it with authority. We, we renounce Satan, Satan, all his works, and all, all his pomp. In Jesus' name, amen. Let it be so, Lord. Amen. Liturgy.